Unless you want to stand, I'm going to invite you to go ahead and be seated. Now, you're welcome to stand. I've never had a standing no, so, um, but you're welcome to. I've been excited about uh, this Sunday all week. Um, in fact, I've probably been excited about this Sunday longer than, than all week. Uh, there's just a real privilege that I have to share God's truth with his people. And we're able to uh, transition from one part of God's word to another part. It, it's, for me, it's very, very exciting. You know, we've, we've been building over the last several months, a couple of months now, uh, a foundation upon which I hope to build and, and to say, okay, this is who Christ is, and this is what he's done, and this is how I relate to all of that, and we've covered that. And if you've missed weeks, not that my teaching is so spectacular, but just so that you know what's going on, you can go back into Facebook and, and catch those weeks before, especially if I mention something, it's like, where is he getting that? Well, out of chapter one, two, or three. And we're going to be making the transition this week into a new part of the letter that Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus. And this is all about application. Paul has given his theory. He's going to give a lot more theory, but he's, he's really given his theory. He's given the foundation. Now he's saying this is why it makes a difference. This is what matters. This is what you're supposed to do with this. You know, if you are Christ's bride, this is how you're going to be. This is who you're going to be. If you can be assured that your sin is covered by grace, this is the impact it has in life. And so he's moving in this letter from this very foundational part to more of an application part. And I'm really excited about sharing that with you. I want to share with you a, a vision, though, first of what Christian family really looks like. I shared a little bit about my family in weeks past, you know, my grandfather's occupation, all those kinds of things. Uh, but suffice it to say, when we moved to, to Kentucky, we'd never lived in a place that has such extended family connections. Michelle and I just didn't know it. Um, I did not know what a second cousin was. I thought, is that like when you demote a cousin? You know, we go from first cousin to second cousin, you know, and then when people are talking about third cousins, I'm like, man, I'd hate to be a third cousin, you know, this kind of a thing. I had no clue. And I, it took me years to kind of figure out those family trees and how that works and, and how important genealogy, it just was completely out of our realm of experience. Never heard of it before. Now, I have bazillions of cousins I've never met. My, my mom's family was huge, uh, but they're scattered all over the place. We had a family reunion in the 1970s. I met them once and have not seen them since. So I know for you all, you're like, that's weird. Well, that was normal for me. When we moved to Kentucky, we thought that was weird, but that's normal for you. And so there, there's, there's this difference. But I want to tell you about my real family. When my parents became followers of Jesus Christ, we started going to church for the first time as a family. And that was my family. And so we didn't call them cousins. or I had lots of aunts and uncles. There were people that were at the church week in, week out. They invested in us. And I, I remember one particular year in the 1970s, my dad was a groceryman. And so he worked for a grocery store, a very large chain. And it was a union shop, and they went on strike. Now, my dad voted no for the strike. And uh, I could get all into, into that, but... Long story short, it impoverished our family. Uh, the, the union was on strike for almost three months. My dad did everything he could. He painted houses. Your know, mom was always really good at making ends meet by stretching stuff like ridiculously 
thin. And I've got lots of great stories about that. One of my biggest claim to fame is that myself and my two younger brothers, we could identify almost any food in a can by shaking it. And um, I'm serious. Lima beans, they squeak when you shake them. Uh, peas have a certain kind of, a, of, of emotion to them. I mean, I could, I could really get into the details. And it was, it was always a competition amongst us because refried beans and dog food are really hard to differentiate between the two of them. And so um, my dad would buy cans of food that you know, would be like a nickel because they had no labels on them because they were dented or otherwise damaged. And so mom would say to us boys, go down and get me three cans of corn or something like that. We'd be shaking these cans because they had this big pile of cans that you didn't know. Um, olives, by the way, have a gold top, just so you know. Uh, and so that was just kind of our, our normal. And then when we went from that normal to nothing, it was really, really hard. And I remember Christmas time came around that year. And I, I was a young man. And my folks just, they just had to say, listen, there's not going to be Christmas uh, this year. Uh, we, we've got nothing. So the, the, my dad is back to work. You know, he's been working for months. But you know, he's still trying to catch up, just keeping us above water. Um, and so we were disappointed. We were kids, and we were disappointed, but it wasn't that big of a deal. And I remember uh, the day before Christmas, all of these presents showed up on our porch. And uh, so we had all of these, these things to open, and they were things that our family, our brothers and sisters in Christ, had gathered together because they knew that my dad had been out of work, had done the best he could, but we still were just impoverished. And I know that we've kind of made a thing of it now, but back in the 70s, that wasn't a thing. And I'll, I'll tell you, the, uh, I do not remember anything that I got that Christmas except for two things. It was the one thing that my parents were able to, to buy for me, which was a series of books um, by Walter Farley, which were just really excellent, really enjoyed those, um, and uh, a donkey. I got a donkey for Christmas. And I remember opening up, you know, taking the wrappers off, and it was this donkey with a sombrero on it. I remember thinking as, as a young man, what in the world am I going to do that? It was velvet. You know, it's like, who would give that to a young man for Christmas? But uh, that just, it just became, I mean, there was like this gasp in our family when you open up. It's like, okay, Robert just got a donkey. You know, is there another message to this or you know, what's going on? Um, but I kept that for years. Why? Because I had some sort of attachment to that donkey? No. It was, it was a donkey. I mean, and it was stuffed. And it was like, what do you do with this? But because for me, I was old enough to know that somebody who didn't have to do anything loved me enough to do something. For only Christ's sake did something. And so while I did not, you know, go to school the next, you know, after winter break. Hey, I got a donkey for Christmas, you know. I kept it. I mean, and it was not until I moved out of the house where my parents raised us that I let that donkey go. Because every time I saw that donkey, it reminded me that somebody loved me enough to do something when they didn't have to do anything. And much of our relationship as God's family is that way because Christ is in us he gives us the ability the authority the power the imagination the donkeys to do something when we could just do absolutely nothing 
And in Christian work, we have lost that idea. We do something to make ourselves feel good, you know, because we're, we're doing charitable works or, you know, and to get kudos from other people. That's a very cultural thing right now. But we forgot that we are able to do something for our brothers and sisters in Christ because God has done and is doing incredible things in us and we have that to share. But we oftentimes do nothing. And so this is where I'm going to be challenging myself and you over the next few weeks, the next couple of months, God willing, to say, okay, Lord, what can I do? It doesn't have to be extravagant. Folks, you're going to have to work hard to go lower than a stuffed velvet donkey. Okay, so the bar is really low. Okay, but it's there. We're going to encourage you to step over it. Get your Bibles, open them up. Find the letter to the church at Ephesus. If you don't know where that's at, there's a table of contents in the beginning. Uh, You can find it, get the page number. We'll be reading from the New Living uh, Translation. We're going to tackle the first 10 verses of, of this chapter. And I'm just going to warn you, Paul just gets, he gets after it right away, right away. He's writing from prison, and we, we know that. And so he's in chains for sharing the good news of Jesus Christ, which is so magnificently powerful that even the government officials noticed it, and that's why he's in jail. Uh, Not because it was against the law to preach the gospel. It was against the law to do anything that would cause upset. And Jesus is very upsetting. And so he, he was there. And so he writes to the church these words. He says, therefore, I, Paul, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling. For you have been called by who? Who calls us? God does. God calls us. All right. I'm just making sure. Y'all look at me like, is this a trick question? We got to remember this because sometimes when we come to Christ, we come to Christ because a friend introduced us to Christ. Sometimes we come to Christ because a mom or a grandmother or a dad or a grandfather introduced us to Christ. And we forget that the actual work is not those of us who are being employed in God's service. The actual work is done by God. Paul has that in chapter 2. It is a movement of the Holy Spirit that changes us from the inside out. And then we're responding to the Holy Spirit's work. And God uses us, also indwelled by the Holy Spirit, to be part of that work. But we're not the ones that are doing the calling. Christ is. God's the one who does that calling. And so this is something we've got to remember. Always be humble and gentle. Be what with each other? Why? That's a rhetorical question. Yeah. You're like, do, you, do we have time? <laughs> because we're people, right? We require patience as people. You don't believe me? Just get in a vehicle and go up and down 471 for a little bit. There will either be somebody who is needing to be patient with you or you're going to need to be patient with somebody else. It's going to happen. Be patient with each other. Making allowance for each other's what? Yeah, you weren't so excited about that, were you? Me neither. 
I, I had, I'll just confess, I, I won't point out the individual, but I've known this individual for some years and didn't recognize him. Uh, so I introduced myself and I saw in the look on the face and it's like, you know who I am. It's like, oh, I do know who you are. Fault, memory, embarrassing, but that's who we are as people. We have faults. And so we have to make allowance for each other's faults because of our great personhood? No. But because of our cultural requirements? No. Because of love. This is a common theme, isn't it? So I'm going to not gloss over that you are at fault. I'm not going to ignore that you are at fault, but I am going to make room for you to be at fault because I love you. One of the, my favorite, favorite, favorite things of Michelle and I's first five years of service to God's church as you know, my being staff as a senior pastor was the congregation I was serving was peopled by folks who had been married more than 40 years. And I'm not too shy when it comes to this kind of stuff. I ask folks, you know, how did you make this work for 40 years? How did you make it work for 50 years? How did you make it work for 60 years? Talk to widows that had been married longer than 60 years. You know, 65, 66, 67. I thought, I thought you're supposed to retire at 67. No, you're still married, you know. How did you make that work? And over and over and over again. These individuals would testify to the absolute incredible power of love making room for each other's faults. It's, it's incredible. And it keeps us bound together when nothing else possibly can. Verse 3, make every effort to keep yourselves united in the spirit binding yourselves together with peace. For there is one body and one spirit, and just as you've been called to one glorious hope for the future. Which, this has nothing to do with the message, but I'm, I'm going to just throw it out there. You know, one of the things, we, we say a couple of things in our culture that are just kind of cultural things, but one of the things that always kind of catches me is whenever the alternative to being alive is considered to be less than staying alive. Brothers and sisters in Christ, if you are in Jesus, the alternative to being alive is the most glorious thing that you can possibly imagine times 10. We need to remember that. You know, when, when our bodies break down and don't work anymore in Christ, that's when it gets really, really super good. Forever. Right? Yeah, it's like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I love doing this because... Some, sometimes people say the weirdest things on elevators, don't they? You know, you get on the elevator and it's, it's that awkward box, right? You know, it's like, what am I supposed to do? I'm supposed to say hi, you know, how are you day, you know, the kind of thing. And, you know, everybody turns around and faces the door. So like they need to remember where it's at. You know, I, I oftentimes, you know, if the, I'll just stand and look at all the people by the door and that'll really get folks concerned. You know, I always keep my hands in sight just in case. So, 
people say just odd things in elevators. And one of the things I've heard over and again about, hey, how are you? I'm fine. How are you? Well, I'm, I'm, it's better than the alternative or better than being six feet under. It's like, why are we talking about death in an elevator? I mean, come on, let's keep it a little bit lively here. We are enclosed in a shaft. I mean, we don't, you know, it's just, and, and I've, I just can't help myself. You know, sometimes I'll tell, tell people, I'm just like, well, you know, the alternative for me is really looking good. What do you mean? Well, I'm a follower of Jesus, and heaven is the most awesome place ever. And then that's when people start hitting the buttons, you know. <laughs> it's like, when, when we get there. So, you know, we can do these things, folks. That's, that is our true destiny. If, if, if Jesus is real, and all those songs that we just sang beautifully Ashley thank you Ken just incredible if that's not just church stuff that we do to occupy time that we could do something else on Sunday morning then wow what what glories to look forward to there's one Lord one faith one baptism and one God and Father who is over all and in all and living through all however he has given to each one of us a special gift through the generosity of Christ. That is why the scriptures say, then he ascended to the heights and led the crowd of captives and gave gifts to his people. Notice that he says that he ascended. This clearly means that Christ also descended to our lowly world. And this very same one who descended is the one who ascended higher than all the heavens so that he might fill the universe with himself. I want to just point out some things that we can take away today. Go right back to verse 1, and it's just kind of work our way through this passage. Can we do that? And you you may want to take notes or just take a mental note, but uh, I really want to challenge you on these things. I'm challenged by these things. Verse 1 says, I beg of you, I beseech you. I think the King James Version is, you you know, I'm shaking you, saying, hey, Walk worthy of your calling. And I've got a confession to make. I've always understood that in the context of later on in chapter 4 and in 5 and 6, which seems to be very much focused upon particular things that we do. You know, you don't speak out in anger and say things that you shouldn't. You don't steal. Uh, You work hard. You honor your mom and dad. You love your wife. You know, those things. You know, those are all good things, and he says all of those things. But as I was going over, just getting ready to teach today, and um, God says, I just want you to read this one more time. It's like, okay, you're God, I'll read it one more time. And I really believe that I understood maybe what Paul said for the very first time. After all these times of reading this passage, Lead a life worthy of your calling. And then he goes right into how we love each other. And so maybe it isn't so much of my personal not doing bad things as much as it is my behaving in such a way that what Jesus said is the earmark of belonging to him, which is my love for brothers and sisters in Christ, shines through. And that's what is worthy walk now i'll be honest with you it is easier to keep my mouth shut sometimes when i'm angry than it is to love somebody 
that's a brother or sister in Christ. So can, we, can I be honest with you in that? Because I think that if you're honest with me back, you'd say that's true. It is easier not to take something that doesn't belong to me, a.k.a. steal it, than it is to love somebody who's a brother and sister of Christ that is annoying. But Paul says, under the power and the direction of the Holy Spirit, that this is what we're supposed to be doing as his family, is to walk in such a way that people like, I know that that person is annoyed by that other person. Why are they treating them with such grace? Why is it that love keeps on oozing out of them? Because that is the question this world needs to ask about God's people. So, the Christian family is people walking worthy of their calling. And it's hard. But guess what? The God who holds the entire omniverse together is living in you. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you can do it. In him, you can do it. And we, we, we love that little phrase, you know, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Right? That's it's like, yeah, you know, I'm playing football. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You know, I'm turning in a big project at work. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I'm taking this test that I studied hard for. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I got to love somebody that really is angering me right now. Eh, maybe Jesus isn't big enough. So, how does this work? Paul anticipates it because you know guess what folks paul got annoyed with people in acts he gets in such a big argument with his very best friend that they decide it's better that the two of them go different directions literally different directions so paul isn't like some sort of saint halo you know he's got it all together and he's telling us little people how to make it work he's having to do these things too and so he anticipates in the very next verse look to verse two how are we going to do this he says Always, how often is that? All the time, right? Always be humble and gentle. Why humble and gentle? When, when we get full of our own position, when we get full of our own power, when we get full of our own direction, that's where humility gets left behind. But when we understand that all of us, regardless of our status and as in the community, regardless of our position, at our work or in the church or anything, all of us are under authority. All of us. Even people who do not recognize that they're under authority, they're under authority. I love to have this conversation with people because in America we've convinced ourselves that we are the boss. It's like, okay, how does that work? Yeah, not too well. You know, boss go, you know, 100 miles an hour all the time. Somebody who's got little lights on their car is going to come down and introduce you to authority, Right? You know, there's, there's all this, this, this misconception of truth, but we're all under authority. So we can say, listen, things aren't going well, but I understand that you're not my boss, but that God's my boss. And so that I can deal with you gently because I know that you are not the boss. Boy, I wish I just had lots and lots of time. I, I'll tell you, I, I worked for United Parcel Service years and years ago. And I had a boss um, that myself... Oh, I got introduced to the term, and I won't, I'm, I'm not proud of this, but I did use it. He was referred to as El Diablo. And for those who are not familiar with Spanish, um, 
It's something akin to the devil, okay? He's about this tall, and he had fiery red hair and a temper that was absolutely indescribable. And um, it was really hard for all of us to work for him because he was demeaning, he cussed us out. Uh, one time I did something unknowingly that wasn't, I wasn't supposed to do, and he literally came and stood on my shoes because he was only this tall, so he wanted to get in my face. So he's standing on my feet, and I'm thinking the whole time, dude, you're on my feet. And he's cussing me. He's talking about stuff I don't talk about with my wife. I mean, it is terrible, terrible, terrible circumstance. But I was able to endure that because I understood that while he was an authority over me and I needed to do my best to honor Christ because he was an authority over me, that he really wasn't my boss. My boss loved me so much that he gave his life for me, shed his blood to cover my sin, and now invites me to eternity with him after he's done involving me in his work. So that put a completely different perspective on it. Now, I'm not going to lie, I got this thing going on in my stomach because I never knew what he was going to say. My work day started at 1.30 a.m. And it's really rough when the very first thing you hear from another human being at 1.30 a.m. is a put down. Normally, profanity laced. And that's the way he rolled. But I could humbly and gently deal with him day in and day out because I knew he wasn't my boss. I think if you'll take that truth and apply it to your circumstance... It'll make life much different than it was before. So he also says to be patient with each other. Make allowance for each other's fault because of your love. One of the translations talks about being tolerant. Maybe that's in your translation. We love tolerant in this culture. It's one of the buzzwords, which means you don't tell me that what I'm doing is wrong because I'm telling you it's not, so you need to tolerate me even though I know it's wrong and you know it's wrong, but we'll, we'll just tolerate each other. It's not at all what, what the scripture is saying, period. We can be patient with each other because we recognize that we each have faults, right? So when I don't expect for other people to be perfect, and they're not, I'm not surprised, right? Because I know people are people and they have faults. And guess what? There's a person that looks at me in the mirror every day. And guess what? That person has faults too. Some of them easy to pass over. Some of them really super annoying. But when we make room for each other to be who we are, then that starts to create an environment to where, not that we're you know, pretending that it doesn't exist, but when we can really lovingly say, listen, you know when we're in Bible study together and, and, and you work up that big belch and you just let it roll? Not cool. You know, it, it, it's, it's kind of beyond annoying and, and you know, you're thinking, does that really happen? Yeah, that happened in one of my classes that I taught in Washington, D.C. of all places unbelievable bunch of people that had been spent time with the president and stuff like that but one one guy who was um, very politically well connected he would regularly just blah 
And people tolerated him. They hated him because nobody loved him enough to say, you know what, that's really not a good idea. You know, if you know, take some man acid, do something, by it, buddy. You've got to do it. You've got to make it work. And Sunday morning is just not the time. It was worse than that, but I'll just leave it there. Verse 3 gives us more of an encouragement. It says, make every effort to keep yourselves united in spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. How can we have peace when we have faults? Because faults create a lack of peace, don't they? I mean, if I do something that annoys you, then we're in conflict at some level or another. But when we're making room for each other to not be perfect, then we can say, hey, if this is a fault, that's definitely something that needs to be addressed, like belching in the middle of Bible study needs to be addressed then we can do that in love and if it's not that big of a deal then we can just let it go and be at peace and not let it go you know how some people say oh i'm just let it go but there's still that tension there you know oh yeah i don't got anything against anybody but i'm whenever you're down the hallway i'm gonna go to the other side or you know those kinds of things and we can genuinely be at peace with each other because we don't owe each other the idea of being perfect because we're not and we admit we're not i'm not perfect i'm doing things that sometimes i don't even know i'm doing that just are wrong and then paul directs the church back to being full of one purpose so the christian family is people who are walking worthy of their calling humble gentle patient tolerant people diligent people dedicated to the bond of peace and this is how they stay healthy they're united by the body and spirit of jesus look to verse four again for there is one body and one spirit just as you've been called to one glorious hope for the future so we're not united by our political affiliation we're not united by working by the same place we're not united by living in the same place we're not united by being in the same socioeconomic or educational stratosphere we're not united by being the same color we're not united by having the same family structures we're not united by any other thing other than who unites us jesus unites us period so that means that we can go anywhere in the world at any time and be united to somebody we have absolutely nothing in common with because Christ is in them. And he's in me too. And so that we can do that. And it's really incredible. You know, we can come into a place that's not near our home like Michelle and I have done and now our son Lionel has done and be at peace because this is a place of peace no because we serve the prince of peace and we're connected because of him and so we can do this because of him it's not me it's not michelle it's not lionel it's not you it's christ and when we remember that it's he that is doing this work in us and through us there's great joy that happens because of it amen And so we get to confess one confession. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, verse 5, one God and Father who is over all and in all and living through all. Paul writes in the first chapter of Colossians that literally Jesus holds everything together. So every moment of existence is there because Jesus is holding it together. That's a big God that we serve. 
And so we don't have to see everything eye to eye. And that's so cool. I'm good. I got a couple minutes. There's this guy who loves Jesus, and he's just a wackadoodle. Um, He's a nut. And he's got some nutty ideas, got some crazy theology. And I just love him. And we got to hang out doing some really crazy stuff because he's a wackadoodle. He's a nut. Uh, And when we were hanging out doing stuff, I was watching stuff that he was doing just as his normal that I would never thought to do. Never thought to do. And I was so challenged in my own walk with Christ by watching him do what he does in sharing Jesus with people. I'm like, why am I not doing this? Now, it would have been really easy for me as a follower of Christ, somebody who's well-educated and separated from his life experience and all those kinds of things, to say, oh, that's good for you, you know, and walk away, and that would be it. But when I understand that we have one faith, one Lord, one baptism, even when I'm with this guy who's a nut, and he's a nut. If I introduced you to him, you know him in a second. He's the guy's a nut. But I'm learning from this nut because this nut loves Jesus and we're connected to Jesus. So I'm learning things that I should be doing in Christ that he's doing. And that's really cool that God does this with us. And so we don't need to see, we don't need to be marching to the same drum beat as far as our lives are concerned to march the same drum beat when it comes to Christ. He's that big. And so we can honestly disagree. Michelle and I used to have this group of people coming in our home. And uh, it would start out with just two couples. And we would study God's word together, hang out because we liked each other. And we were kind of in the same life situation. It just exploded. We ended up being all sorts of people. But there was, there was one guy. His name's Austin. And uh, he and I did not agree theologically. I mean, he was wrong. And I was right. But we just did not agree theologically. And, and I did not not bring it up i'm gonna i'm gonna confess this but he would bring it up and whenever he did i was like yes it's on and so we'd have these arguments i mean knock down drag outs his wife would roll her eyes my wife would roll her eyes they would go off and do something else because they were tired of listening to it they knew that neither one of us were gonna budge because if you talk to austin about it austin would tell you straight up just what i told you that i was wrong and he was right he's wrong but that's the, the another story you following me I mean, we would just beat each other up. But at the end, we'd hug because of Christ. And I knew he was wrong. I still know he's wrong. But if Austin called me this day, and he lives on the other side of the United States, I beat a line to his door because I know he loves Jesus, and I love him desperately. Because we're one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Even things are important. What we disagreed on was important. But love still was bigger than that. So to be healthy, we've got to be united by the body and spirit of Jesus. We need to be people that confess that one confession. That even though we may not see everything eye to eye, and even though we may bitterly disagree, like Austin and I bitterly disagreed about something, Jesus is big enough to let us love long enough for Austin finally to figure out that he was wrong and he'd come to my side, right? 
And here's this really cool thing that gets skipped over. Where I grew up um, in the 1970s and early 80s, one of the put-downs was, it was kind of funny because nobody believed in God more than just kind of maybe a theory or something. But whenever you do something that was kind of really confident, you know, they say, who do you think you are? God's gift to the world. They do that. And uh, I don't know if you ever heard that. You ever heard this? You know, who do you think you are? God's gift to the world. Okay. Uh, when I was in my mid-20s, I found out that that is exactly the truth. I am God's gift to the world. And if you're in Jesus, you are too. But we've convinced ourselves otherwise. This is what Paul is saying in 7, 8, 9, and 10. He says in verse 7, however, he's given each one of us a special gift through the generosity of Christ. What is that gift? That gift is the forgiveness of sin, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That comes through Christ. And that's he goes down in 8 and 9. He talks about how he descended to the very depths of this world. So there's nobody that was excluded from being included in this gift of incredible grace. And then he is going to go on and this is the next part of the chapter to say, listen, these are, these are titles that some, some of these gifts have, but it is not everything. We're gifts to each other. And when we have that attitude of, I'm not here to evaluate you, to say, okay, I think we'll get along and we can be friends, but I'm here to be God's gift to you because I have love from him and there's plenty of it and I can share it with you by giving you a velvet donkey for Christmas. Do you see this, brothers and sisters? I mean, we think that love has got to be something like big diamond rings or new cars or, you know, come renovate your house or something like that. But I'm standing before you as a man who was once an adolescent who got a Christmas present of a velvet donkey and wasn't offended because he knew that somebody who didn't have to do anything did something for the sake of love. And so, if we're going to be God's family, this is where we got to start. This is the application part. All of that stuff that Paul shared in 1 and 2 and 3, necessary to build upon. But this is where we got to start. And just in case, this is a small crowd and we may not have one here, but just in case somebody is one of those ornery cusses, please don't give me a velvet donkey for Christmas. The illustration's good. That's in the past. But please do remember it. Because we're going to have lots of opportunity to love each other because of Christ. And let's make that work because of him. And we'll grow as a family. And people want to be here with you because you're exuding his love. And it might be something that you do for somebody. I'll give one more illustration. Ken, and why don't you go ahead and make your way up here. I was, I was at, at the hospital, 
um, doing the pastor thing, doing hospital visits. And uh, there was this gal that got on the elevator with me, and I could tell she'd really had a tough day. And she was punching all sorts of buttons, so I told her, man, this is a really, really tough day. And so I was just turning me on the elevator. It was really super uncomfortable. I could tell she'd been crying. And so the elevator was slow at this particular hospital. I just like, fine. I said, did you have a tough day today? And she says, yeah, I really did. I didn't say anything else. And then the elevator was so slow, she finally decided she would tell me more. She said, yeah, my dad's dying, and I'm here, and we've got this broken relationship. She was kind of like, blah. I was like, oh, my gosh. I just asked that question. And, uh, and uh, so the elevator goes down, and then she turns to me, and she says, I have no idea how to get out of this place. Can you give me directions of how to get out of this place? I said, sure. I said, this is, you know, this is the way to go. This is the parking garage where you parked at. I knew the place really well. And, and that kind of thing, thought that would be it. Well, that place was closed because it was after hours and it's downtown Cincinnati and they lock it down and the police are there and all that kind of stuff. And, and so I said, hey, we can't go that way. We're going to have to go this way. You know, and I'll, I'll walk in. So, um, she walked ahead of me. I, I was trying not to be a creeper, but making sure she didn't get lost. And he walked ahead of me, and, and we got out to right where the, the parking garage uh, was at. And um, she turned to me and said, thank you. I said, oh, you're welcome. I said, would it be really weird? Would you let me just pray for you? And she just burst into tears, sobbing. I'm like, great. <laughs> You know, it's like, this is really awkward. Some people are going to be thinking I just broke up with my girlfriend or something. I have no idea. It's, it's all this stuff's going through my head. And, and so she just starts talking about all of these things in her life. And it got down that because I offered to pray with her on the street corner in downtown Cincinnati, that she felt comfortable enough to say, you know, I just feel like God has forgotten me. I said, obviously not. He put us on the same elevator, prompted me to do something I normally don't do twice. A, talk to you in the elevator. B, ask you if I could pray for you. And I just want you to know that God sees you. He sees you. I prayed with her. Never seen her again. Don't even really remember her name now. I knew her name for a long time because I prayed for her after that because I knew how just tough her life was at. But these are the things that God has us to do. It didn't cost me any money at all. And it was probably a total of 10 minutes worth of time and a little bit of awkward feeling. But that was it. And these are the things that God will do in us and through us. It's not, you know, nobody's going to leave here and say, man, that was just awesome what he did. It wasn't. It was very normal for somebody who has love. And if you're in Christ, you got that. And so you're going to have an opportunity to do that. Maybe it'll be in an elevator. Maybe it'll be with a coworker. Maybe it'll be with somebody who sits on the opposite side of that road that you're sitting on right now. I don't know. But here is our opportunity. Ashley's going to lead us and come to the altar and, and this song uh, is an invitation to come to a place, and you're welcome to do that. But I'm going to really encourage you to listen to the lyric as it's saying, and that you respond to that invitation to come to Christ. And then as you come to Christ, maybe it's for the very first time, and if it is, I want you to come tell me so I can celebrate with you. But as you come to Christ, 
and you recognize that you're sinful before him and that he's forgiven your sin and he's going to revolutionize you from the inside, as you come to that, I'm going to invite you to walk away with his love and begin to look for ways to be healthy as his family because God will give us all sorts of opportunity to share that very thing. Maybe even today as we gather with the community and give kids candy and hopefully share with them the incredible love that rests in us as we love each other and do the things that we're going to do to serve them. Would you stand? We have a time to respond.